Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to a mid-July edition of the VanCast, and much like the Seattle Mariners in their dominance over the Toronto Blue Jays, we have really, really good relief pitching here because our starter, Thomas Drance, top-of-the-lineup guy, is dealing with COVID in Montreal. Now, we're not sure if he's actually just trying to extend his Montreal trip uh, because, you know, who wouldn't want to spend more time there because it's such a wonderful city, or we're not sure if he's just devastated by the four-game sweep of his Blue Jays by my Mariners that have them now tied for the final wildcard playoff spot in the American League. Yes, I know it's July, but that doesn't matter. If you're a Mariner fan, you take the celebration when you can. Paul Seawald joins us. Oh, wait, wait. No, it's um, it's Diego Castillo. No, no, no. It is Harmon Dial, my good friend, stepping out of the bullpen to take down all topics that is Vancouver Canucks. How are you, my friend? I'm doing great. I'm ready to spit 95 mile per hour heat. Yeah, you know, and, and for you, it's not just all heat. I mean, generally, you've got a, a wide array of pitches. Yeah, I can I can throw some curveballs in there. I've uh, I've got a good slider, but uh, I, I like it high and inside. I like pitching there. Yeah, you know what? Because you, I, the only thing that was wrong with this weekend was the Drancer wasn't here to actually go to Seattle to enjoy it. So, you know, but he, but he's in Montreal, which is which is a good place to be, a place that still should have a major league baseball team. And uh, I know our producer, one of our producers, Jeff Demet, is going to be hearing the start of this podcast, and he's just going to be losing his mind because he's also a Toronto lover, Blue Jay lover, Toronto resident. So tough on you, Jeff, Chip, and myself, and Harm. We're West Coast people. So we're West into the, Coast, yeah, West Coast, best coast. We're into the Mariners, and you know, let's let's talk a little bit about uh, the, the reason why we're here for the Vancast, and that is the Vancouver Canucks. Before every Jays fans jump ships and and hits stop and gets to another podcast. Um, you know, we talked about the draft. We did our post day one of the draft live room and certainly the JT Miller discussion around the New York Islanders and what did or didn't happen in the hours leading up to the first pick. Uh, we, you know, we still don't have any clarity on what happened there. Both sides are still being quiet. We certainly got some reports about what plausibly could have happened. Canucks are still denying any involvement, uh, vehemently denied it to Drancer when we talked last Thursday. And, um, you know, just generally... There was a lot of quiet around the Vancouver Canucks. Yes, that was certainly something that, that took up a lot of oxygen. But when you look at the overall performance of a management team that has, you know, impressed, not like big time impressed in terms of significant moves, but, you know, they've nibbled around the edges and certainly getting the Brock Besser extension done was uh, was a tidy bit of business. But, you know, we, we talked about a JT Miller trade uh, there was discussion of a Tyler Myers trade. More than anything, there was discussion about trying to create cap, or create cap flexibility in and around the draft and also adding some picks, right? Because we knew this is a team that has just gutted itself of picks in recent years. So there was talk of trying to maybe add a second-round pick or you know maybe moving down in the first round because some of their top guys were still available and, and adding draft capital with that type of decision. None of it happened. So what do you make of how quiet the Canucks ultimately were on draft weekend? Yeah, it was pretty surprising to me because, again, we've heard, I think, a lot of rhetoric with this management group about them understanding how many different areas they want to improve in, right? They've been blunt and honest about the fact that the team relied a lot on goaltending, about how they want to get faster, about how they they would like to add sandpaper, about how they want to open up cap flexibility, and they've got this big Miller decision, and 
obviously there's still time to address those things, but based off of what management has been saying and certainly um, what, if you sort of read between the lines in, in the lead up to this off season, we've expected some fireworks this off season really. And again, there's time to accomplish those things, but it was really quiet. And it's not just the lack of moves, but I think it's, for me, it's the fact that it didn't seem like there was a whole lot of activity period. And what I mean by that is, for example, it, at the 2019 draft, which was the which was the only other event I've covered, it, it, only other draft I've covered in person, I remember even on day one when the Canucks didn't make a move, there was still tons of chatter. There was still tons of buzz and, and speculation around, looks like the Canucks are up to something. And ultimately, they didn't end up making a day one move. But then, of course, on, on the day two, they swung that big splash for JT Miller. And it just felt like they were on the cusp of, of making a big move. Whereas here, I mean, aside from the New York Islanders report, it didn't feel like there was uh, a whole lot of buzz or it, it didn't feel like they were on the cusp of getting something significant done. And so to me, it's not even just related to the Miller thing, as you kind of mentioned it would have been nice for them if they had found a way to kind of clear some cap space, which opens up more doors, opportunities, avenues over the next few days. Um, of course, the draft picks thing, whether it would have been draft picks for, for this year or next year. Um, I think, of course, the, the big one is kind of like we've been talking about for a long time here, the Miller decision. And I think there's a camp of, of people kind of bring up the, <clears throat> the idea of patience and and kind of sticking for sticking up for kind of the price that you feel is right, and I definitely do get the sense that that's how management has been playing things. And people kind of bring up the Matt Duchesne example of of look how patient Joe Sakic and the Colorado Avalanche were with with the Matt Duchesne decision, and, and they ultimately held out and, and got what they wanted. And the difference there, of course, is Duchesne had two years of term left, right? Like Sakic didn't wait until. Um, Duchesne's final year before kind of pulling the trigger. So yes, Sakic was patient, but he also had a lot more time um, and leverage than the Canucks do right now. Um, and there is, in my opinion, there's risk to hanging on too long, especially if you're holding on to him midseason. Because if you look at past comps for top line guys that have been traded at the deadline, they typically haven't fetched full value. I mean, I think of someone like Mark Stone, all he went for was Eric Branstrom in, Branstrom in a second round pick. And that same deadline, um, Matt Duchesne, ironically, was uh, was scoring at a 45 goal, 90, 94 point pace. Ottawa traded him to Columbus as a rental and they picked up first round pick and change. So to me, if the Canucks want to sort of maximize, if they decide, hey, trading JT Miller is the best course of action, I think um, they've got to do it, in my opinion, this offseason. I think there's risk um, if you sort of bring him back. Uh, and it, it's a tough one, though. And I'm not going to sit here and sort of criticize or rip management for not having made a move yet because there's still tons of time for agency hasn't even opened yet. And there will be, for example, teams that um, see how the UFA market unfolds, whether certain guys like Goudreau hit the market and and teams may be circling back. So there's still tons of opportunity to to get things done. But it has been a little bit surprising. The one thing I will say is I don't think the forward market has worked in the Canucks' favor as it pertains to sort of making this proactive decision on Miller. Of course, to brink it didn't go for much, right? Seventh overall pick and in and, and some and some change there, uh, which for a player of Debrinkit's caliber, I mean 24 years old and over the last two years, only five players have scored more goals than Dabrinkit. Four of those guys have won Hart trophies and the others Kirill Kaprizov. For, for Dabrinkit to be that young and, and that coveted and, and have that kind of team control and to only go for that type of return, I mean, if you're a Canucks fan, that is, that, that's underwhelming in terms of what Chicago netted. And what's interesting too is when you have markets where like let, let's look at the goalie market for example. There are way more bidders than there are sort of available goalies, and because of that, what you see or see is teams are moving quickly to get their guys right. Like Detroit really jumped the gun to go after and, and get Vili Huso. Um, you look at Washington with uh, or uh, New Jersey with Vitek Vanacek, 
and teams are just they're they're moving Colorado with uh, with uh, with uh, Georgiev. They're moving quickly to get 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 their players done because they don't see a lot of availability. Whereas I think with the forward market, I think teams kind of think they have options and can sort of afford to be patient. So I'm sure that hasn't helped the Canucks' case. But yeah, I mean, it it was surprising for me that we haven't seen any dominoes, whether it be Miller or, or even some of the other guys. Um, we haven't really seen uh, management put their stamp on this team yet. Yeah, no, we haven't. And there's still time because I, I think there's a feeling that once you get into the first day or two of free agency and certain teams may not be able to get what they want. And there aren't a lot of guys like Miller available at that time anyway, right? I mean, you can certainly debate the merits of Geno Malkin and there's a few others. But, you know, I don't I don't know that there's going to be a lot of players that have the ability to impact the way JT Miller has. So what do you do, right? And I think they feel that at that point, some leaves may shake loose and someone's going to be a little bit desperate to get something done and there's still time. And, you know, I know they talk about bringing him back to training camp. Boy, I think that would be a huge mistake. And not that I've got any criticism of the player himself, but you can't get into a situation where you get to next year's deadline and you're still within a whisper of a playoff spot and now you can't make a move and now he walks for nothing, right? Like, you just can't do that. And the one thing that's pretty clear is the longer they wait... And the pressure points, whether they're real or imagined, whether the club believes they're real or imagined, as long as those pressure points start getting checked off, ultimately more leverage goes to the player if they do want to get a contract done. And and I'm not suggesting getting a contract done is the worst thing, but I I think it'd be a real bad idea for them to go into the season. I mean, maybe there's a a world where they believe all of a sudden he's going to have a mediocre first half to the season and they can somehow regain some leverage. But is that what you want in that moment, right? Like a, a mediocre performance, a player that's probably disgruntled. If JT Miller's playing mediocre hockey, that means he's a grumpy guy. And that means that, you know, that all the positive impact he has in the room probably turns a little bit negative from time to time because he knows the contract situation is out there weighing on him and, and weighing on the club. And, you know, he's going to feel a level of uncertainty. I mean, you can mark my words if they have to wait until the deadline and you know he sits there and and gets traded or doesn't get traded he will talk about much like he did last season about how the the dialogue around the deadline affected him and others right i mean they talked about that last year jt miller talked about that the day after the deadline right brock besser talked about that the day after the deadline you do not want this to get to that point for anybody's sake you simply don't want that so as much as they say oh yeah you know we're fine you know, the reality is, is there's still a lot of dialogue around the player. Darren Drager has reported, Kevin Weeks has reported it, that yeah, they are still in active trade discussions. Nothing imminent, nothing deep, but yeah, the conversations are still happening. Teams are still reaching out, you know, and maybe some teams believe that they've got a little more, um, you know, when you get that close to the draft, it does become easier to to fall in love with a specific player. And now you're like, well, you know, we'll trade next year's pick. We're going to be much better next year. And so now we're likely going to trade a lower pick, you know, in order to get JT Miller. Kind of everybody's of that mindset. So, uh, you know, there's going to be conversations continuing. And, you know, can you imagine JT Miller on the first day of training camp having to discuss this issue? You know, and then having to oh go through God. it over and over. I and mean, we know what an emotional player he is. And you, look, we both like JT. Like, well, you know, I certainly haven't had an axe to grind or got into it with him. I like the guy. And, and you know, he he's fun in certain environments, right? So, but coming into training camp and like, he's not a player that holds a lot back. If he's pissed off about a situation, he's going to let you know about it. And if he's tired of hearing about a certain situation, he's going to let you know about it. So... Uh, it would be interesting to see what would happen. And I think it would be a mistake for the Canucks to get to training camp in September and still have this situation weighing over them. Agreed. And, and there are a couple of things that I'm kind of watching for in terms of if you're going to sort of go down the the trade route this offseason in terms of things that could affect the Canucks' return. And I've written about a couple of these things recently when I tried to kind of weigh what Miller's tr- potential trade value could be. One is how many teams out there and this is something that I'm curious, and, and, and it's been tough to peg down. How many teams would view JT Miller as a core piece where you look at him and and you go, let's trade for him and extend him right away versus how many teams would look at him instead as, hey, he's he's making $5.25 million for, for one more year. Let's just depends get him what you give up, rental. though. It, it depends what you've got to give up. I mean, teams aren't going to give up what the Canucks want for a one-year player. No, well, that's what I'm saying, right? And And that's where... 
for the Canucks to maximize their return, for them to really get the package that they that they want, I think they need or should be hoping that there are as many teams as possible out there that view Miller as more than just a one-year rental, right? Because you can talk about, let's say, a, a team like the Carolina Hurricanes. I'm sure that with the way that they were unable to score goals uh, against the New York Rangers in the playoffs for a second consecutive season, scoring being an issue, um, Rod Brindamore sort of lamenting the fact that they don't have uh, an elite goal scorer. I'm sure they'd love the idea of adding a piece like JT Miller, but the way the Canes do business, I would ha- would be I would seriously doubt whether they whether they would view him as anything more than a one year rental. Same thing with Colorado. I, I'm sure the Avs would love the idea of um, adding JT Miller as a potential Nazem Kadri replacement, but again, it would kind of be in my opinion, based off the cap situation and the mega extension it would take to take to um, retain Miller long term, I'm sure they'd have doubts about extending him um, or else or else I'm sure they would have already gone down, say, the Nazem Kadri route. So I think that that is something that I'm kind of keeping an eye on, especially as we hear kind of conflicting reports um, and lots of speculation about are the Canucks willing to grant teams permission to to speak with Miller's camp? And, and is Miller's camp sort of gaining some sort of control from that dynamic? Um, and then the other thing to kind of keep an eye on is, of course, everything is supply and demand. How many other forwards are realistically going to be available, right? Like if you're the Canucks, I think you're hoping that Johnny Gaudreau stays in Calgary. So um, you at least have one more sort of elite game-changing forward um, stay off the market. But besides that, right? What's going to happen with Patrick Kane now that the Chicago Blackhawks have blown everything up, right? Are the are the Hawks going to all of a sudden be okay with the idea of retaining salary and potentially facilitating a trade there? Um, Vladimir Tarasenko still hasn't rescinded his trade request, right? Are the Blues comfortable still holding on to him? Um, obviously, tons of buzz in, in Winnipeg about Pierre-Luc Dubois saying, hey, I'm going to test for agency reportedly in uh, in 2024 um in Mark Shifley as well he sort of he sort of questioned his long-term future in Winnipeg and uh, our colleague at the Athletic Marat uh sort of mentioned that there were preliminary trade discussions with Shifley um Boston's got to figure out if they they can sort of um you know Pasternak's in the same situation as Miller in terms of being a UFA at the end of next season they're going to obviously try and move heaven and earth to resign him but if they can't then they're not going to let him go for nothing either. And so, again, if you're the Canucks, you're hoping that as few of these players as possible um, become available. Yeah, a lot, a lot of good, um, a lot of other dominoes and a lot of other things that uh, are going to affect what winds up happening on the JT Miller front. But uh, certainly a lot of active dialogue. And I, and for me, I'm still going to be hugely surprised if we're having this discussion in the next couple of weeks. I, I think this thing has to get done. I think it's going to get done. Um, and I think the longer they wait, the more difficult it gets to get done. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So as the Canucks gear towards the 13th, which is day one, I, I keep feeling like it's Canada Day. I, I get told by the network every year, you can't do anything on Canada Day. I'm thinking, that's a long weekend. But we haven't been able to. So here we are, the 13th. So the, the league pushing it back because of a COVID-delayed season has helped us all have a July 1st. Uh, but here we are, July 13th, and the Canucks, they still want to improve, right? Like they haven't done a lot of it to this point in terms of meaningful improvements. They want to find ways to get better. We've talked about the areas where they need help. We've talked about uh, a right shot top four defenseman. We've talked about help in the top nine as far as forwards go. If they move from JT Miller, potentially a top six, whether that's a center or a winger is going to be determined by what they wind up doing with JT Miller. So there's a number of areas they need to go. Where are some logical places for them to look? Yeah, it's it's interesting. I want to actually start with an RFA um, that really sort of sticks out to me, and and I've kind of mentioned this name before, but Nicholas Waugh out of uh, out of Vegas, um, Jesse Granger recently, um, who who covers the Golden Knights, wrote an article about how 
Um, Vegas is in, is in a really tough um, cat bind with their with their uh, RFAs that require arbitration rights and. Um, Ra, Wa was making 750k right around league minimum, and and now he's in RFA with Arbrights, and and he had a really good year, so he's in line for a significant raise. And because Vegas has already reportedly reached an agreement in place with uh with Riley Smith on an extension, they don't have a lot of cap flexibility. So that's where I look at Wa. He's a six foot four right shot centerman, right? So right right away you're you're checking off a couple of pivotal boxes there. And here's a guy who I've liked Wa for a long time. I I sort of watched him play and figured that this is a guy that could sort of break out with greater opportunity. And he finally sort of got more minutes this year and sort of his production increased accordingly. Broke out with 15 goals and 39 points. He's a guy that uh, has also killed penalties, brings a little bit of that sandpaper element you want. Um, he's got underrated finesse and skill too with, with his hands, but he also sort of plays that um high traffic power forward sort of style so to me i look at a player like wah he can play center he can play wing kills penalties reliable two-way guy he's 25 years old and and i think to myself that's that's the perfect sort of player that the canucks should be targeting and of course i mean the easiest way if you wanted to guarantee yourself in in getting nick wah we of course don't see him happen very often but it'd be the offer sheet like if you go out and you you spend, say, like a three, three and a half million dollar cap hit. I doubt Vegas can afford that and the compensation would only be a second round pick. But of course, if you don't want to go down that route, you can still use the leverage of uh, an offer sheet threat to facilitate trade discussions, right? You can approach Vegas and say, hey, we're interested in Wah. We know the offer sheet route is available. Um, we'd prefer to work out a trade. And if not, and if we, if we can't facilitate facilitate a trade we're gonna offer sheet your guy and you can sort of figure something out there because again vegas is something's gonna have to give and they've got laurent brossois as a sort of piece that i think they want to shed for cap space purposes um like that's one of the avenues they're looking at i wonder if they look look at a, a player like alec martinez in terms of trying to shed cap space and, and bring some of their guys back but you look at a player like brossois uh, a backup making a little bit over two million. He's injured right now, and and I wonder if there would even realistically be a market for him. So they're in a tough spot there. So he kind of right off the bat sticks out to me as you know he's not a UFA, but he's the sort of player that I think could be available. And given his age and and, and the type of boxes he checks, uh, and I've long time been a fan of this player. I, I think he makes a ton of sense. Yeah, I don't disagree with you at all. You know, and and I'm trying to get a sense of how open Alvin would be to the offer sheet concept because we talk about that every year and Benning wasn't going there. He was simply too old school to go there. And, you know, you'd have to think Jim Rutherford is probably a lean that way, but depending on how much latitude he gives Alvin, I don't know that he's that guy. I wonder if he would take advantage of that tool because so few GMs are willing to do it and it makes so much sense. I mean, you know, it, it made sense when, um, you know, we were, uh, who's the defenseman in Tampa? Um, Chernak. Yeah, Eric Chernak, like, you know, a, a logical piece that you could have got for a number. Now, he may have wanted to go back there anyway, and they're they're finding ways to take care of him. Uh, it's certainly, you know, a, a team that has that level of success, it's hard to pry, them, pry a player away from. But give the option, put it out there, make it hard. And they just were so unwilling to do that. Do you get the sense that this management team is any more willing to go there? Yeah, I, I, I do sort of... I do legitimately wonder if they'd consider it in a way where I didn't think it was possible for the last management regime. Now, do I think that that's, you know, they're they're looking ahead at the um, at, at this upcoming RFA deadline and whenever they're eligible to make offer sheets and thinking, let's really get to work. No, I, I don't think that's their top priority or, or or the first way that they look at improving this roster. But I also do think that they recognize, and this is an important point, the Canucks are in a spot where they're trying to juggle two priorities where they're not only trying to build long term for the future and trying to get this project on track to becoming a contender, but they also can't just sit here and, and rebuild and, and trade away all their good players and and not care about what kind of team or, or really care what kind of roster they ice for um, the next couple of, of seasons. And, 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 you know, maybe next season isn't a big priority, but they still, whether it's two years from now or, or th three years from now, they don't have a lot of time, I think, to kind of right this ship. And when you're balancing two priorities like that, 
I think that means you have to think outside of the box. You have to be bold. You have to be aggressive because it's a tough needle to kind of thread um, if you're the if you're the Vancouver Canucks. And the other thing to kind of kind of keep in mind is, especially with a team like Vegas, usually one of the biggest reasons teams are wary of offer sheets is is this idea of retribution. If if we go after one of their guys, they're then going to go after one of our guys. And the thing with Vegas is Vegas is. I, I can't see them ever really having the cap space to meaningfully take a run at um, any of Vancouver's prized RFAs down down the line. Um, and again, e- even if you're let's say bold, not bold enough to go the offer sheet route, you can you can just use still use that as leverage. You can you can act like you're fully serious about it, and if you want a more amicable solution, just use that as. Um, as leverage to kind of facilitate facilitate trade discussion. So whether it's whether or not they actually make an offer sheet itself, even if they just use the threat of it for some of these players around the league to open up trade possibilities, I think they've got to use that. Um, I, I just think the Canucks are in a spot where they've got to use every tool, every avenue um, to them. They've got to at least con- seriously consider it in order to kind of upgrade um, this roster for the short and long term. Another player that you mentioned was uh, was Colin White as an intriguing target. Uh, what do you think in terms of a bargain free agent addition? Yeah, I, I like Colin White. And here's a guy who the Sens obviously bought him out because it was a unique uh, situation where the one-thirds rule still applied, where in most buyout situations, you're still owed two-thirds of the, the cap hit in the salary. But because of um, White's uh, age, the Sens were only on the hook for one-third. So it made a lot of sense for them to kind of move on from White in his bloated contract. But here's a guy who he scored at a 36-point pace per 82 games over his NHL career. And when you look at, it, at the way the last few years have gone, it's he's he sort of strikes me as the sort of player that makes a ton of sense as a reclamation project. Because um, I believe it was the 18-19 season, I want to say, where he scored 41 points in in 71 games when playing with uh, Mark Stone and Brady Kachuk. But afterwards, he never really had a chance with offensively talented linemates, right? Stone was dealt that year at the deadline, so he went. Um, and then with the emergence of Josh Norris and, and Tim Stutzlow over the last couple of years, White just kind of slid back the lineup and you know didn't really play with Brady Kachuk anymore. And so you look at his most common linemates at 5-on-5 five five over the last three years, there were Tyler Ennis and Nick Paul. And look, Ennis and Paul aren't bad players, and, and Paul especially has a lot of two-way value. But those guys aren't gifted offensive players. And so you take that away from him. Um, you add injuries to the mix. Paul, Paul or um, White, I should say, has been really banged up and missed quite a bit of time. And then I think the coaching staff also just, as a result, kind of lost faith and, and confidence where where White was healthy, scratched in and out of the lineup. And I don't think you can underestimate the type of... Uh, the type of um, mental toll that can have on a player where all of a sudden you're doubting your abilities and it can be a real, real hit to your confidence. And what we know about offense and and making a high level impact is so much of it flows on being able to play on your instincts about being able to play with confidence, uh, not second guessing yourself. And that's where you look at White's situation in Ottawa the last few years. I think it was just a really difficult situation. And I think it's great for him to have a chance to hit the reset button. Um, and with White, he's also a pretty reliable two-way player. Uh, I don't know if I mentioned it, but he's also a right-shot centerman. Um, and, and I'm actually surprised the Sens haven't, hadn't to this point given him a penalty-killing opportunity uh, because he is a pretty detail-oriented player. And there was some chatter about that, I remember, a few years ago about should Colin White earn some PK reps. So here's a guy who it kind of strikes strikes me a little bit like the Alex Wenberg when Columbus bought him out, right? It was a similar sort of situation where uh, Columbus and Ottawa both see this talented middle six centerman. Um, they bet long um, with uh, with the contract, and then whether it was injuries or things just kind of not working out, it fizzled out. Um, and the guy needed a fresh start, and Wenberg ended up going to Florida on a pretty cheap deal, um, and it was an impact driver for them in the in the 2020, uh, 21 season. And I sort of see a p- similar potential with uh, with Colin White if he can stay healthy. So some interesting options there. Let's uh, work backwards a little bit. You know, we, we talked about what didn't happen at the draft and, you know, the the patience that the organization is showing at this point and not overreacting or not 
paying too much or getting back too little for what their assets currently are. But as far as the draft itself is concerned and who they did pick day two and beyond, you know, a lot of talk about Elias Pettersson just because of of the name. But um, take me through who intrigues you the most about the Canucks day two picks and who you think might have a shot to play at the next level eventually. Yeah, I mean, there are a couple there that that stand out. Obviously, you mentioned Elias Pettersson, and I think... I, I really I really like that pick in the third round and industry wide I think a lot of teams liked that pick for Vancouver because Pedersen I think he, he he's a sort of player that maybe goes overlooked because he doesn't have a, a flashy sort of um, side to him he plays a pretty simple game but here's a guy who he's a good in zone defender he defends a rush well he's six foot two and he's got some meanness to him like I think he's the sort of defenseman who once he fills out he's going to be 205 210 and He's going to be the the sort of players uh, that uh, that forwards don't like going in the corners with, which the Canucks really do need more of. Um, and he held his own in the SHL too, which I think for a young defenseman who's a first year draft eligible um, is pretty impressive. And, and what intrigues me the most about Patterson is he's got the combination of having the good si- a good size, but he's also a plus skater, right? Four way mobility, he moves well, and and to be able to nab a player. Um, in the third round, who has SHL experience at the at the highest level already, who has above average size and can also skate really well, to have those types of physical properties um, in a player you select in the third round, I thought that was great value. Now, of course, the upside isn't super high because his simple player, I I don't ever think that he's going to be, um, say, like a top notch puck mover or the type of guy who's going to bring a lot of offense to the table. But he has a pretty high floor, in my opinion. And if he if he can be, you know, one day down the line, a bottom pair defenseman who can kill penalties for you, um, def- defend the rush well, and and can really excel in in a lot of those defensive aspects, and maybe even has if if everything goes right, maybe even has some sneaky second uh, pair upside. Then, then that's I think a great pick for the Canucks there. The other one that kind of intrigues me, not because I know a lot about him, but because of of what I've heard from others, um, Ty Young. Um, I've been told Ian Clark loves Ty Young. He's the guy that Ian wanted, and the Canucks got him. Now, obviously, when the Canucks sort of make the decision to draft a goaltender, it's not as if Ian Clark uh, walks up to the draft table and is like we're picking that guy. It's it's a collaborative process. The scouts are involved, management is involved, but. Um, again, my understanding is Ian Clark really, really likes Ty Young. And you look at Young, he has good size. He helped, uh, the, uh, he helped the Prince George Cougars once, uh, Ty Brennan went down with injury into the playoffs. Um, he's just, he's six foot three. So he's got some good size and he's also one of the youngest players of the draft class, um, in terms of when he turns 18. And that's always, I think an underrated thing that people don't talk enough about in my opinion is, a lot of times the guy's only a month or two away from being 2023 draft eligible. And when you think about 17 or 18 year old prospects, 10 months can make a huge difference in, in a player's development. Um, and that also applies with uh, Jonathan LeCaramacchi, right? He's also one of the um, youngest players of, uh, of this year's draft crop. Um, and so those are, I think, um, a couple of exciting notes. And after that, I wasn't as big a fan of, say, the Gardner picks in, in Dorrington, but um, Pedersen and Young um, kind of caught my eye. And of course, we're going to see LeCaramacchi at Prospects Camp this week at UBC. So camp uh, begins today and it'll continue until the end of the week. Uh, names that are of interest to you, I'm going to try to get out there tomorrow. I don't know if you'll be there today out at UBC. But for me, you know, LeCaramacchi is the obvious one. I want to see Linus Carlson. And just the fact that, you know, he had a fairly good season in the SHL and just kind of how close he is, because given his age now, that time is coming. You know, they're talking about him getting some games in Vancouver this year. So I definitely want to see how close he potentially is right now. Um, The other guy that I want to take a look at is Aiden McDonough, because, you know, we talked a lot about where he stood last year and the fact that they didn't get him signed. And now, you know, but they still feel pretty confident that they can. Yes, he's going back, but. Everything is, everyone's saying the right things and just kind of how he's treated and what his development curve looks like right now, um, you know, may lead to something down the road here, potentially as early as this year. Those two jump out at me because I tend to take a more short-term view on these guys, but I know you follow the draft a lot closer than I do, so you might be thinking more long-term in terms of who you want to get a look at. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to be interested to see um, 
you know, obviously Carlson, as you kind of mentioned, but um, Philip Johansson as well, right? He's a yeah. right shot D prospect and the Canucks don't have enough of them. And he, of course, was drafted in the first round. He was a reach there in terms of uh, being taken that early. And um, I, I don't think his development has been stellar since he's been drafted. But uh, the Canucks, we know, and, and they, of course, came, the draft came and went and they weren't able to add a right shot defenseman, which... You know, it is an ideal, but you also kind of understand because they really wanted to prioritize taking the best player available. But given their inability to add um, RD prospects at the draft, um, I'm that much more interested to see where Johansson's at uh, in his development. And of course, um, I, 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 Carlson really sticks out to me because we know the, the eye-popping numbers that he had, um, 26 goals and 46 points in 52 games in the SHL. Um, I believe he was breaking some records for um, age-related production. But um, he's a sort of player type too, where specifically I want to see where his skating is at. Because with Carlson, I think we know he has a good shot. Um, he was sort of drafted initially, I think, as having some um, some intriguing two-way tools and playing a detail-oriented ga- game and being a responsible 200-foot player. But the skating has always been the biggest question mark with him, especially in a North American setting where... Um, the pace of play really improves, and and that's also going to dictate whether or not he's a center prospect or whether he's a wing prospect. And for a Canucks system that um, that lacks high end centermen as well, um, in terms of uh, what's coming next in the prospect pipeline, it'd be great if Carlson could develop into a center prospect, even if he's only a bottom six piece down the line. Um, especially again, he's a right shot guy, and I know we've talked about it so much, but the Canucks really kind of have that need, so. I'm going to be interested to see where uh, where Carlson kind of stacks up in, in terms of his skating uh, specifically. So there's that. And then also Danila Klimovic. Uh, we've heard um, Ryan Johnson speak a lot about how he expects Klimovic to make big strides going into his second um, AHL campaign. And it was an interesting up and down campaign for him where Klimovic was hot right out of the gate in October, but then he did not have a great, run at things um, in in terms of his production kind of flatlined. He wasn't getting, I think, a lot of minutes. Um, and it and there were some growing pains in terms of the um in terms of the all-around details. And so with, you know, obviously I think training camp is going to be a better representation of the progress that he's made, but Klimovich to me is another prospect to kind of keep an eye on. Yeah, again, a player that you'd think is a little bit closer just based on age when he was selected. You know, the interesting part with Carlson is people, even in the SHL, you know, have talked a little bit about his strength in his own end. And he's 22 years old. He's still not yet 180. Um, You know, you'd think that he would have developed a little bit more in that way physically. But yet, when when you look at him on film, he still looks like a very young player that still has a ways to go in that area. And I know that sounds like an old school thought, you know, and we talked about Elias Pettersson and he was able to function because he had a lot of, he had a lot of practical strength, if not obvious weight related strength. I, I don't see the same things in Carlson. That's an interesting one because I mean, it's tough to tell with the tape, but I actually sort of thought that Carlson, at, at least from viewing him on video um, a couple times here and there that he was, I, he didn't strike me as a thin player for, or is, is kind of what I'm um, getting at. And, um, I mean, Elite Prospects has him listed at 194 pounds, so... Um, I think the Canucks have him listed at 179, so... I Yeah, I think that's Hockey DB, so I, I don't know... I'd be curious to know how... Recent. It's 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 really weird how in the NHL, there or, or in hockey in general, there isn't really like a standardized way of knowing a guy's weight, so I guess that's one thing we're also going to kind of be keeping well, with, an eye with on. with LeCaramacchi, the Canucks and Giants had him not only listed with different heights, but different ages Yeah, in their releases. One of them had him at 17, not 18. Yeah, I think, you know, just based off rule of thumb, I think whatever, you know, I, I don't know how HockeyDB and, and, what, and, and these sites get fed their measurements, but usually in my experience hockey db like i tend to lean towards elite prospects but i guess we're gonna see right and that's where camp is also so uh so useful because i remember a guy like jack rathbone he wasn't listed as being very big and he was sort of discussed as this undersized defenseman and yeah he doesn't have ideal size but you know the conversation about him 
you'd think Jack Rathbone was Quinn Hughes in terms of how small he was. Yeah, he's and not then, that. He's thicker yeah, for sure. Exactly. So that's where in person, you know, whether whatever height and weight he's listed at doesn't really matter as much, I think, as as much as how he looks when we actually see him in person. So I guess we'll just kind of have to make that uh, judgment whenever we get out to UBC. Boy, I'll never forget the first camp that the first Elias Pettersson was out at UBC and like literally he couldn't have been 160. Like he was just <laughs> so, he looked like he was 13. And then, uh, and I say that as the father of a 13 year old, but uh, obviously things have changed and he has managed to to get stronger. But um, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, like, you know, as far as Klimovich, you know, there were times when he was just sitting and watching, but yet the, the club had a lot of good things to say about him and wasn't necessarily a high pick, but the highest pick they had at that time um, is there pressure on the player at all, given how last year went and the inconsistencies of it? I don't know if pressure is the right word, but there's definitely expectation. Um, again, we heard it with with RJ. And it, the thing is with Klimovich in, in terms of being a first year AHL player at 18, 19 years old, it's a pretty rare thing. So I kind of expected bumps uh, along the way and the way that he kind of started so hot in October was actually kind of surprising to me because even when you look at first round picks a lot of the time, uh, and obviously a lot of that is complicated by if you're drafted, usually out of North America, you go back to major junior or, or the NCAA, or if you're a European prospect, you go back to your European league. So um, there just aren't a lot of players that consider the HL right away anyway. But even then, it's just rare to kind of see see young player, see a player that young, especially drafted um, what was it, the third round or the second round um, in an AHL setting right away. And I, I think the reason the Canucks sort of made that gamble was because they looked at Klimovich's physical package and they said the concern with prospects and, and then making the leap to professional hockey is is we don't want them to get blasted physically. We don't, we don't want them to get hurt and have their confidence shot. Whereas I think they looked at Klimovich and, and being this big body already right around 200 pounds and thought, hey, he's ready for it. And the other thing too is, with Klimovich, and this is this was apparent too in, in kind of watching watching the tape, and this is where you're hoping for, I think, more maturity is pro habits and pro details were the biggest sort of uh, weaknesses that that I think the organization wanted him to work on. And I think they sort of felt that, hey, if he's going back to junior, he can kind of cheat and, and have these shortcuts and score a ton of goals in, in junior and not necessarily have a lot of opportunity to like he's, he may not be held as accountable as he was in let's say Abbotsford where Trent Cole was on him uh, about back checking about how he moves his feet away from the puck about his two-way awareness about the consistency and the effort level and the overall pro habits and I think that's where even like forget the production I think that's where they're going to be looking at is he more is he a more mature player than he was in his rookie season um, and not to say that Klimovich was immature, but he was an 18, 19 year old kid who was very raw and sort of played um, over in uh, in Belarus. And that's not the most structured sort of environment. And he has that little bit of JT Miller in him as far as um, the temper and, and the frustration. So I think for him to earn more trust and for him to like everyone looks at the production. Right. And I think that's obviously what you look at in terms of is this guy sort of making progress but before he gets the opportunity to produce more, Klimovich, in my opinion, is going to have to show that he's he's willing to do a lot of that hard work, a lot of that dirty work, that he's willing to just that he's a more mature player than he was, because that's what's going to give him the give him the trust to earn more minutes to then produce more. So that's that's I think what the organization's expectation is going to be of him. And yeah, I do think they have a high expectations. Quickly before we let you, actually not quickly, but before we let you go, this is the last one I want to get into, and that's Lakaramaki. What is best for his development? Uh, is it to go play in the in the Swedish league again, or is it to potentially come here and play junior for Vancouver uh, in a more NHL style environment, albeit with younger players and just with the Canucks right there, being able to evaluate him constantly? Is there any upside to playing junior over playing against men in Sweden, given where he's at today? Personally, I think in, in in my senses, the organization likely feels the same way as the Allsvenskin is probably the best uh, way for him to go. Um, Dujardin, it would have been nice if, if he had if he had uh, continued to have a chance in the SHL, but 
his club obviously got demoted. And, and look, I think that actually means a lot to him. Um, that he's all, he's on a child he's on a he's on a team where he's childhood friends with um, Noah Ustland, who was also taken in the first round, and um, Liam Ogren. And and so you look at the you you look at Swedish prospects and they've spent years with these clubs. And, and Lakar Mackey, I believe he was 15 when he started with um, his SHL club. And it there's a special bond that I think players have with their organizations. And Lakar Mackey, he didn't speak, you know, his English isn't very developed, but you could tell when he was asked about the opportunity to potentially go back to Sweden again and play for his club and help them get back into the SHL. He was like, Dujar needs to be in the SHL, it, it it would be special to help them get back to the SHL. So I think that opportunity means a ton for him. It's a comfortable environment. And compared to the WHL, he's at least going to still be playing with men, which I think um, is an advantage because as a slight player, and, and this is where people would sort of say, would raise concerns about he's a perimeter guy and does he play on the inside? And those are valid questions and concerns to have. But he, but he he was still in the SHL and he still scored seven goals in what was it, 26 games. So adapting in a pro setting to me is more important than getting used to the North American, um, the smaller rank and, and that sort of thing. So for me, I think it's best for his development to play in an environment where he's comfortable, where he is legitimately motivated and where he's going to be playing against men. Yeah, it does make sense. And that certainly has been on brand for this organization when they've had those opportunities to take them with a number of European-based players. And uh, I'm sure that's the way they're going to wind up going here and what the player is going to want to do. Um, but, you know, they talk about uh, LeCaramacchi being at least, you know, two, probably three years away from being a consideration here with the big club. And that's okay. That's, the club needs to show that they've got enough in the prospect pool or enough in the big club that they can be patient with their prospects, which they certainly haven't shown to this point. We saw a lot of patience last week in and around the draft, but bigger picture uh, to see some of those top guys go through a development process, whether it be an additional year in Europe, whether it be some time in the American Hockey League, I think that's going to allow for prospects to hit the ground running a little bit more than what we've seen from time to time with the organization here. I mean, yeah, it might work for the Pedersons and Hughes, but there's so many others we could list off that it didn't necessarily work for in some development time would absolutely have been beneficial. Uh, that's going to do it for us today. Farhan, actually, looking- one point that I, I wanted to make is something that I'm really kind of keeping an eye on going into the, going into the remainder of the offseason. Yeah. To me, I think I'm going to be really curious to see, is the club comfortable making decisions that potentially harm the roster short term in order to build long term? and the reason that that really sticks out to me is because let's say you look at a long-term goal like building um, building the blue line. I think we all know that if, if the Canucks ever want to be a legitimate Stanley Cup contender capable of rivaling teams like Colorado, they really need a lot of young, high-end defensemen. And obviously, you look at their work in the draft. I like the Patterson pick, but adding a third-round defender isn't really going to significantly move the needle there. And so we know even in terms of, yeah, they have the need they'd like to be able to acquire an established top four defender. But usually if you're doing that, you're overpaying in assets, right? You look at the Seth Jones trade or the Islanders giving up the 13th for Alexander Romanov, or you're taking on a risky contract or you're, you're overpaying in free agency. So to me, that means one of the solutions for the Canucks to solve that need long-term is you've got to acquire def- quality blue chip defense prospects that probably involves trading a good good player two away, whether that's Miller or, or whether it's a Connor Garland or whoever you decide on. I think that's the route you kind of have to take in if you if you really want to address that long-term need. And then you sort of look at it and you go, obviously, if you're trading a JT Miller or if you're trading Connor Garland, you're obviously making your roster weaker for next season. That's something you have to be okay with. It's kind of like, it's kind of like sacrificing peace and chess, right? In chess, you want to hoard as many good pieces as possible. You want as many of them alive as possible. But sometimes you're in a position where you look at the board, you think and strategize multiple steps ahead and say, if my next move is to protect all my next pieces at all costs, I'm not putting myself in a good tactical position to win the game long term. And I'm looking at the the chess board that the Canucks have in front of them. They need to sacrifice a piece or two to gain that that stronger long-term tactical position because some people they play chess, they never want to lose a decent piece. They're never willing to sacrifice. And so unless they play a perfect game, they never win. And that's, I think the 
that was the fundamental issue, I think, with the last management regime was they went, hey, we're, we want to build for the future, but they were never willing to sacrifice the roster's you know, short-term um, health to help it long-term. The last regime wanted to win the chess game without ever sacrificing any pieces on the board. And it's just so hard to win that way. And that's what this current regime is going to be tested on right now. In my opinion is, are you okay with taking a step back on paper today for the better good of tomorrow? Because again, I think the Canucks are in a spot where to address some of these long-term roster needs, you're going to have to sacrifice a piece or two and make some tough decisions. Yeah, and it, it's simple enough to say, okay, well, they're going to move on from JT Miller. That indicates that they are, but what do they do with it, right? Because you don't want to wind up signing somebody because they've still talked about, yeah, we want to be in the playoffs th this year. And that certainly becomes a mandate from ownership. And so, okay, you move JT Miller, but if you now all of a sudden have to bring in a piece that you're not sure about, but you've got to pay too much, and we're not talking about, you know, some of the Antoine Roussel type moves, like they're not going to be that ridiculous, but you don't want to put yourself in a situation where you can't fix your cap long-term, right? Because if you look at it on paper right now for today, they're in position to add meaningful pieces. But what's it going to cost you to do that in terms of term? And are you going to compromise yourself going forward? So, you know, we know they're going to add some, if they, if they move on from JT Miller, it's not like they're just going to get young. They're going to add some pieces that are going to cost them for this year. I fully expect that to yeah. happen. But how much term do they give those prospects in order to make that work? And how much does that compromise them going forward? That's the bigger concern. Yeah. Uh, but um, no point trading Miller and let's say overpaying for Kadri and for agency. Absolutely. Perfect example. Perfect example. Um, on that note, uh, we're going to wrap this one up. Paul Maurice of the Florida Panthers and Pierre Lebrun joined Craig Custance and Sean Gentili on the eve of free agency Tuesday on the Athletic Hockey Show. As for us, we're going to be back on Wednesday night for a live room edition where we react to the first day of free agency. Hopefully the Canucks have some involvement in that so we can talk about it. And here's going to be a treat for all of you. Kevin Bieksa is going to join us as part of that live room, which will go around 6 o'clock on Wednesday night. So please be sure to tune in. Drancer and I will post the link just before we go on air, as we always do. Bieksa is going to join us. He's not as smart as Harmon Dial, even though he's quick to tell us he's a college guy. But uh, nonetheless, we're going to have some fun with him, so that'll be good. Uh, as for us, thanks for listening to the VanCast. Please follow us on your favorite podcast platform. Don't forget to leave a rating and a review. Right now, you can get an annual subscription to The Athletic for just a dollar a month for six months when you visit theathletic.com slash VanCast. Harm, thanks for doing this. Thanks for pitching in and pinch hitting. Actually, no, you were, you were, the, relief, you, you were the relief pitcher. We pulled you out of the bullpen with Drancer down and out. We'll see you out at UBC this week. Yeah, thank you. And and don't Kevin BX is better than me, so don't like don't. I didn't say that. He is. No, you're a much better prospect. All, all I'm saying is VIP should be very excited for that. I'm really excited for that. Kev, Kevin is, is one of my favorites and I'm I'm glad that he finally did he unblock you off Twitter? He unblocked me. <laughs> you, you know what I can't wait for? I can't wait for him to take a newspaper, roll it up, and smack Drancer over the nose every time Drancer tries to use a big word. You guys have to ask him about that, about the whole um, the uh, the blocking people on, on Twitter thing. That, 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 that'll be a funny conversation, I think. All right, we'll do. He hasn't blocked me yet, so 